Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Creature Concert Podcast. I'm your host, Elif. I'm a filmmaker by training, so I have an art background, and I'm here with Dr. Lucy Spellman, who is a wildlife veterinarian who has seen a lot of wild animals that I have questions about up close in the wild. So today we're going to be talking about an animal that I actually didn't know before talking with Dr. Lucy. It's the crested barbet. I was so in awe when I first saw their photo and Lucy told me about it. So Lucy, could you actually describe the crested barbet a little bit? Yes. So this bird is, you know, there's so many different kinds of birds in the world. And it it turned out this was one that I did a study on. And that's why I thought we should talk about it today. But it's, um, it's related to the uh, other birds that you might know better, like woodpeckers, toucans. So it's a little... You know, it's like a 10 inch, nine or 10 inch long bird. It's pretty little, uh, weighs like up to 85 grams. That's about two and a half ounces. And um, it is colorful. It has like a yellow, speckly yellow red head. And it has, and its its chest is yellow with these little bright orange red flecks. Uh, it has black wings with uh, and black tail with little white flex and then there's a little bit of red on the tail and it has this crest like a a, almost like a shaggy it looks like a shaggy crest from a distance but it's just black feathers Mm -hmm. and then lastly it has a really stout little beak like a triangular beak that's just sort of yellowy green and and it's a really colorful bird when you see it and you're like ooh ooh ooh, and you you want (laughs) to you want to get up close and figure out what is what is making all of that color so they're very colorful yeah, they definitely, they look funky <laughs> in some ways. They're- yeah, the other cool thing about them is they, when you see them, they're, they they jump around, they hop around a lot. <laughs> like they, they fly, but they, they're going for insects a lot. And so they're just like hopping from one little branch to the next, or they'll be on the ground. Um, they're, they're found in, uh, in uh, Africa, East and Southern Africa. And so um, like they could be common in a, in a garden area and they're just, they're always looking for food and they don't like a woodpecker, right? They're going mostly for insects that they do eat fruit, but, um, but the insects, you know, like hang from a branch just to get their beak right lined up with a little hole to get an insect out of there. It's pretty cool. They're pretty fun to watch. Yeah. It sounds like it. I, I'm starting to think that uh, the crested barbet is my sole animal at this point. They look so much fun. So I actually want to ask you about um, uh, actually, I'm not sure if this is true, but are they monogamous? Yes. So th- this is a bird that in went during the breeding season. It has a, a mated pair, always stays together, and um, they make their nest together. They fight off other creatures together. But then when they're not in the breeding season, it's just kind of, you know, everybody's out for themselves, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we have a very interesting subject to talk about uh, about <laughs> barbets, uh, which is cancer in wild animals. So um, I want to start by asking, is cancer a common problem in wild animals? Yeah, that's a great question in that um, I don't really have a firm answer. I think... Um, we, when we find it, we describe it. And, but of course, most wild animals, we are not monitoring closely, knowing, you know, whether they might die with a cancer, you'd have to do like a proper study, which is what happened in this barbet. But that study is called a, like an animal autopsy or a necropsy. You'd actually have to find evidence of the cancer in the microscope and be able to say it's there. And 
so with wildlife, you know, unless it's in a it's captive living, you know, animal might die, and you know, you're not going to find a lot left of it because we have scavengers, right? So mm-hmm. it's not easy to diagnose, and it's it's possible that animals in the wild really aren't living long enough to get cancer in the sense that most cancers are age related, although cancer is also genetic. So, you know, there, you can have a young animal or human for that matter, get cancer. It's all in the genes, but um, we know like captive living zoo and wildlife, uh, you know, animals that live in zoos and animals in nature parks that are, we do find cancers in them. And that's, that's the story we're going to talk about. Mm Mm-hmm. And why why did you decide to study this particular subject? Why was it important for you to understand it? So my profession, it's zoological medicine, like that's what we do. If we have an animal that has a problem, we try to figure it out. And the challenge is that most of the time, no one else has figured out that exact problem in that exact species. Or if they have, it's not written down anywhere, right? Because there's so many creatures. And in this case, this is really um, early on in my career, but I have never seen another one of these since. So that's like you know, we see one case in our whole career and that's one of the values of scientific publication. Like that's why we publish things so that we can share, oh, I found this odd thing in this animal. And so that's one answer, one to to understand. And then the other is that because when you first see something new, it could be a series of problems, right? Maybe more animals are going to get that problem and you want to start alerting people, hey, we need to look out for this because almost all of the animals we ever talk about, they're all in trouble. Like their numbers are declining because they need all the things that humans need and humans are winning that. So uh, in this case, um, it was a, a zoological specimen and we'd never seen anything like it. It had a huge, it was this little 10-year-old barbet and it had this huge lump on its jaw and it was really thin. And we knew it, that was old, 10 years old is old. And we thought, well, you know, what is that? And we wanted to find out. Mm-hmm. So how did you go about the study? So that's, you know, in general, in my, with my work, um, we have to get our hands on the animal, right? And, and we can certainly look at a bird with just, you know, holding it gently in a little in a towel. But in this case, we needed to get a piece of that tissue that's called a biopsy, just like you would do in people. And we thought about whether we should like do a little surgery and remove the whole thing, but that would have ruined his jaw, right? So we just took a tiny little piece uh, under anesthesia and um, took a look at it. And and it was confusing because it wasn't really clear what it was. It looked like it was something wrong with the salivary gland, but there I couldn't find anything in the literature about that tissue in a bird and you know, one of the things we thought it might be would be some kind of infection that other birds in the, in the, where this little guy was living could have. So that was a worry. And, um, and so we, we did the little biopsy, weren't really sure, took some radiographs, saw that the bone of his jaw was kind of falling apart. And within a couple of days we found the bird, you know, um, dying. So we, we euthanized him humanely and, that left us with, well, now we can really sample the tissue and look again. And, um, and that's what we did, but then we still didn't know because we, we still didn't know what that tissue was. And so we had to send it out for a special stain and eventually it came back and it, and it was confirmed that was a salivary gland cancer that had spread to the liver, which was 
not been reported because most of the salivary gland tumors in animals are not aggressive like that. They just stay in the salivary gland. So the whole thing was very unusual. Wow, that's so interesting. And it must it it must be very tough to kind of unfortunately be able to figure out what's happening after the fact that an animal um, suffered from it. But um, did this work lead you to work any on, on any other similar problems? Yes. And, you know, it's the hardest thing about working with animals is they, they don't live forever. And, and, but when something does die, it's like the only way you really know what was going on because a lot of what we're doing is, you know, we have diagnostic tests, but we, we still don't know as much about these creatures as we know about people, for example. So mm. I did some more digging because, you know, it seemed that this was unusual and, I found this somewhat obscure um, literature about comparative anatomy of the salivary glands, which actually was really interesting. So if you think about it, why do you have saliva, right? You have saliva so that you can maybe moisten the food that you're eating and swallowing, and then you have saliva so that you can start digesting it. And Mm -hmm. that depends on the species and what you're eating, right? So like if you are eating something very complicated that needs a lot of digestive enzymes, you're going to have more advanced or more complicated salivary glands, if you will. And if you're, and so what I learned was that in some birds, like a heron or a cormorant that just swallow like fish, they they don't need a lot of saliva because what they're eating is sort of wet and slippery. So those birds have very reduced salivary glands. Something like a chicken, a bird that's eating grain or grasses has actually a lot of salivary gland development because the most grasses are like a seed and have to break that down. And so then it came down to, well, what's what's the barbet normal salivary gland, you know, and and because we still weren't sure. And so I found a paper on woodpecker salivary gland anatomy. Wow. And it turned, yeah, if you think about it, you watch a woodpecker and they, you know, they're using their tongue to get that um, that insect, right? They, they use a beak to pri- pro- probe it and find it, and maybe they grab it with their beak, but then they, and a toucan does the same, and then they sort of toss it into their mouth and swallow it. If you go watch um, videos, you'll see that. So uh, that means that they need the little sticky stuff on their tongue, and if they're eating an insect, which has a, you know, has a carapace, has a chitin, it's not the easiest thing to digest. Maybe they do need some extra, you know, salivary power, if you will. So it turns out in a woodpecker, the the space between its little lower jaw bones is all a huge salivary gland. Like that's their normal anatomy. Wow. So that plus the special stain coming back, we 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 determined and wrote this um, paper just describing this was unusual and this is something about their anatomy. And it, you know, it wasn't like an earth shattering study by any means, but for me, it was like a great um, exploration of comparative anatomy and, you know, and how all that works and how related species have similar things and how as they evolve over time, they have different things. It was really, really great, um, great learning for me. Yeah, I can, I can imagine. And I, I bet it was full of insight and so much fun actually to do this research. But I also want to ask you about with so many species on earth, how do you keep track of these differences? Yeah, so I guess the question is, um, you know, how do how does it work to know what's to keep? Yeah, how do, how does it how do we know 
um, whether whether something is important, right? So so we don't know that. So when you have an unusual finding, it's in people as well. You know, you document it because you don't know, and you don't really know that you don't know at the beginning, but once you have a bunch of cases together, then you know that that's important. And so we tend to be able to remember or we we spend more time on sort of repeated problems, like let's say species of animal that get heart problems or species of animal that um, get vision problems. And so most of what we know really well are the more common problems. And, mm -hmm. you know, we have those in publications and we have textbooks and like any profession um, in biology in general, we have meetings and we, we share information, but it's kind of this ever expanding encyclopedia of knowledge. And I think, again, that counts for whether you're studying whole organisms or microbes. And that's why the field of science is just, it's expansive, right? Because we we keep having new ways to ask a similar question. You know, we come up with new technologies that allow us to ask a question in another way and we find out new information. And that's really the value of, of science is sort of documenting this. And it's not documented just for the scientists, right? It's for all of us to use. And I think, I think just curiosity in the natural world, we all have that. And for me, this, um, you know, why would it, Barbet get cancer and why would it have a salivary gland cancer is a really kind of an obscure little story, but I wanted to share it because I think it just it's an example of of what's out there in the scientific realm. It's there's so many questions to ask and so much that we don't know. And so if you're you know in need of inspiration, you can literally <laughs> just search, pick a creature and search something, you know, bird, cancer, salivary gland, see what pops up. <laughs> and, you know, that might give you a way, uh, you know, a way into something, whether, whether you're trying to come up with an idea for a new piece of work or whether you just want to find out something new. Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, this kind of scientific research is definitely is becoming more and more central to my artistic work. Because I've, I've learned how, how much it inspires me and how there's so many little interesting nuggets of information that can blow up to being um, complex artworks or stories. I also want to pull the story back to um, this one part one last time before we reach the end of the episode and ask, is there a lot left to figure out about cancer in animals uh, and specifically if the barbet had lived, um, would uh, would you have done something like a chemotherapy? Yeah, so there are um, veterinary oncologists, just as there are, you know, doctors for cancer and people, and um, it's a hard field in in animals because if you think about it in people, there's so many decisions you make about, because really with chemotherapy in general, you're trying to kill tissue and have the, the abnormal tissue go away and the good tissue stay. And that's hard to do without making the individual feel sick for a while. And so you end up in the position of having to decide you're going to do something that you know is going to maybe make the animal feel sick. So for the most mm -hmm. part, cancer treatments you know, we we do that in companion animals where we have a, a you know where we have a pet owner relationship that we can kind of have a better sense of that. If it's a wild animal, you know, in, no matter what the setting, you know, in a zoo or in a park, it's hard to 
hard to get that part right, you know, and I think some kinds of chemotherapy just are really like using a steroid to shrink shrink uh, a cancer. And if it's a kind of cancer that responds to that, that that might be an okay thing to do. But I think it's um, it's problematic because it's a decision-making process that, you know, you can't make for the animal. But the flip side of that is if you aren't going to try to treat the animal, then you, you know it's going to just start suffering. And then you have to be prepared to put it out of its suffering. And that's also a really hard decision. So it's never easy. And it's really about kind of getting all the information. And if, if an animal can live with a cancer and it may not look great if it has a lump on its face, but if the animal acts okay, you know, I think we tend to err on the side of, you know, quality of life. And that, again, a lot of this might sound a lot more like this has to do with captive animals or pet animals, companion animals, but it translates to all animals because we're, we're responsible for all of them to help them all feel well. And, uh, it's just a lot of judgment calls, and that's where the science helps. Again, it's like if if we can understand why something is happening and how long it might um, take to make the animal not feel well, then we can also make a decision like, well, we know we have a couple of months, and let's you know have the animal have a good life between now and then. So, um, not a not a straightforward answer to that one, but it, but treating cancers in general is. A very exciting field of research, uh, very much tied to studying those genetics, right? We started off by talking about all cancer is essentially genetic and understanding um, what we can do about it. Uh, I can see someday we will have way more treatments for cancer in animals than we do right now. Mm -hmm. um, it's so amazing for me to see this responsibility that um, wildlife veterinarians are taking on to study and protect these animals and kind of use, I guess, accumulation of information that we have as humans positively and help creatures other than ourselves. I want to kind of end the episode on a different note and ask whether there's any resources for our um, listeners that they can use to learn more about uh, birds and kind of do their own research if they would like to. Yeah, so there's so much great stuff out there for birds now, and and probably the most maybe the most famous is the Cornell Ornithology Lab. Uh, they have an online like bird encyclopedia that's amazing. They have an app where you can identify birds. There's also um, an e, a group called eBird that's also an app. So if you're if you want to contribute citizen science data to to seeing birds, you know where are we seeing different species. That's a great way to do it. Um, you know, I think that so much of what we all can do is, is what's right in our backyard and getting to know what's in your backyard and what species are outside your window or if you have a favorite walk, you know, that can seem a little overwhelming. But if you start to learn a little bit, you realize, well, there's only so many out there that right? may sound <laughs> like a bunch, but you can actually figure out who's living in your neighborhood with you. And and I think that's the beginning of really celebrating birds is 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 actually studying them and like learning their calls or learning something about them because otherwise like it's hard to they, they're, they're tiny they move quickly even a large bird is hard to kind of feel like you're getting to know it when you're just watching it so I really think this is a group of animals we're reading a little bit about them what what birds are in your area that can be really fun then going going out and trying to look for them they're also great yeah. um you can just uh, search um 
there's a there's a podcast called Bird Note. You can search the sound of the bird you're interested in and learn by the sounds. There's so many different ways. And you can go out and do photography and videography. I mean, imagine if you went and photoed or videoed these um, little barbettes. Maybe you would see they're doing this sticky, funny thing with their tongue. And you could have actually <laughs> told me that they must have a big salivary gland there. Like, you know, I could see how how careful observation through a lens or video or or um, sketching drawing could actually help us understand how these guys eat uh, you know that all the information comes from you know, all all different sources so yeah hopefully you'll go yeah. out and look for some birds today <laughs> yeah definitely I have a crested barbet uh, image on my computer as we're recording this podcast I definitely definitely think you should google crested barbet as soon as you finish listening or well look it up while you're listening because you won't be disappointed trust me on this they're amazing little creatures and of course as always if you end up making artwork about these amazing creatures tiny little creatures please send them to us through our social media we'd love to future it we'd love to share all your artworks about the wildlife we're talking about and Lucy, thank you so much for sharing all your amazing stories. It was so much fun learning about the barbets. Uh, you're welcome. I look forward to seeing if anybody makes any work around these guys. <laughs> <laughs>